Well, would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter? 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. 1 Peter 3, verse 7. That's in the way, 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 way right-hand side of your Bible, way back, almost towards the end. 1 Peter comes right before, you guessed it, 2 Peter. You're good. You're doing the math. We're in this series that we're called, calling Straight Out of Context, and this is a series uh, about passages in Scripture, I've just picked some, that are often misunderstood just because they have been taken out of context. The, the, the thoughts about them aren't God's intended thoughts. We read them, we just take it right out of context, and now we mis- misunderstand God. And so the purpose in this series is to remind believers, hey, as we read our Bibles each morning, We need to develop the skill of understanding what God really is communicating, what His intentions are as He's communicating it. It's a skill that a Christian needs to develop, and so the purpose of the series is, yes, to remind us about that truth, but also to practice together, to to practice doing this so that as you read your Bible throughout the next few weeks, you can do the same thing to the passages that you are reading. And so the question for today is, are women weaker than men. Are women weaker than men? So that comes right out of the verse that you've turned to, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Let's read it. It says, you husbands, in the same way, live with your own wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And so the question is, does the Bible say that women are weaker than men? I mean, that's a pretty fair question, given the verse that we read. Probably we should first start off by saying that men and women are different. Do we agree agree with that? Now today, like oddly today, that's a controversial statement. But for the last 6,000 years, that's not been a controversial statement. Men and women are different some of the differences we like. That's why many of you are married in this room, because you like the physical differences. Remember when you first got those hormones flowing in your veins at puberty, and you started to notice those boys, or you started to notice those girls? Yeah, we like some of the differences. We like the physical differences. Other differences? Ah, maybe not so much. But men and women are different. Now, the Bible tells us, though, when they were created by God, both men and women are created equal in value. Going back to page 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And so God created man and woman. And when he did that, he created them with equal value. One is not higher and one is not lower, both are created in the image of God, equal value. One is not better, and one is not worse, they are of equal value, they're made in the image of God, but very different. And the Bible tells us in in page two that the purpose of these differences is for completion, that one would, would complete the other, not compete with each other, but would complete each other. Maybe there's been some competition in your marriage, and we're going to get to why that is today. Yours isn't the only marriage that's experiencing competition, if it is. Now, though it is true that there's 
massive differences between men and women, all, our culture has gone down the slippery slope of saying that we don't like that idea. We like the idea that men and women are the same. And it started back in the 1960s, well, it really even started before that, but back in the 1960s, you had the you know, women's liberation movement, and, and the whole idea was we don't need a man, that m- women can do everything that a man can do. And so as the slippery slope gets slippery, uh, no longer do women need to be mothers anymore. We can do everything that a man can do. And now today, because since we can all do everything each other can do, now, now men can be women, and, and uh, men can get pregnant, and men can have a menstrual cycle. Now, we all know that they're not really pregnant or having a menstrual cycle. If any man is having a menstrual cycle, it's not a man. It's a woman who's dressed up to be like a man, and they want me and you and God to pretend that their pretending is true. But that's what we get when we go down the slippery slope of we're just all the same. Because when you go down the slippery slope of we're all the same, now it becomes offensive to talk about the differences. But we all know that there are differences. When the most recent Supreme Court nominee was still in the nominee stage, Famously, she was asked to define a woman. Now, that's pretty crazy, because for the last 6,000 years, nobody needed to define a woman. Everybody knew what a woman was. But now, with the divisiveness of everything that is going on in our culture, she's asked, what is a woman? And because this is such a divisive topic, she took the the stance of a non-stance that says, I can't define what a woman is because I'm not a biologist. That's what we get when we say that men and women are the same. They're not. They're different. The week that I started preparing this this sermon, um, this came up in the news. This guy, he's from England. He's been giving his blood his entire life. He has been giving blood for 50 years. He's 66 years old, so you can do the math. He started giving blood as a teenager. And he's given hundreds of pints of blood in his lifetime. The most recent time he went in, he was rejected. We can't take your blood. And why was that? Because when he was filling out the questionnaire that you, ta- that you fill out when you want to give your blood, he didn't answer one question. And what question did he not answer? It's on the paper that he's holding up, but you can't see it, but I zoomed in on it. I highlighted it. I arrowed it. Here's the question that he didn't complete. Are you pregnant or have you been in the last six months? And he says, that one doesn't apply to me. And they said, well, we don't know that you're not pregnant, so you can't give blood. And so instead of noticing the obvious differences between men and now we've just created one like amorphous gender? <laughs> good job, everyone. We're doing good here. But men and women are different. They're, very, they're equal. God created them equal in value, but very different. And so the question today is one of those differences, are, are, are women weaker than men? That's the question. Now, as we turn to our Bibles in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
we have to remember the process of finding context. It's understanding it within the few verses that that verse is, and then it's looking at other verses that come before it so we can kind of get a running start at it, and then it's to look at that same topic in other parts of Scripture because everything kind of uh, uh, answers each other's questions. The Bible always interprets itself. And so as we get to First Peter, we have to know what what's being written here. And if you would have started back at the beginning, you would have realized some things about the era that this was written in. This was written in the first century, AD 64, about. And in Rome, in the Greek culture, in AD 64, the, the, the conditions for women were nothing less than tragic. W- women had no say in most of their life. There were arranged marriages, and so women didn't get to decide who they were going to get to marry. And the culture suppressed, men, uh, suppressed women to the degree that they lived in miserable marriages their entire lives. One Greek philosopher wrote about this issue with women and wives in the culture. This is what they said. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of sex and wives to have legitimate children. The only purpose for a wife was so that you could bear a child that would take your money when you die. That was the only purpose of a wife. That was it. And so because of that, women lived terrible lives in the first century in, this, in the Greek culture. They were secluded from most of the rest of society. They weren't invited and didn't go to normal public uh, events. They were secluded in their homes in compounds where only their husbands could enter the the compound, and there they lived alone for their entire life. And the Jewish men who were living in this Greek culture, they, they saw this, they were living in the culture, and so they would pray a prayer. The Jewish men would pray this prayer, thank you, God, that you did not make me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So this is the culture that this, uh, w- was, th- this was born into. Now the, the gospel of Jesus is spreading in this kind of culture. And wherever the gospel of Jesus goes, it is revolutionary because the gospel of Jesus elevates girls and women back to their rightful position of being equal in value to men. And so as the gospel is spreading around, there you have women who are getting saved. And wherever Christianity goes, where if there's a Christian hospital, or if there's a Christian school, or if there's a Christian outpost in some country that uh, devalues women, in those places, in those Christ- there are bright lights for women because they elevate women back to their rightful place. And so the gospel of Jesus is spreading in a scenario like this. And so in the first century, women are hearing this, and they're getting saved, and they're finding that they have freedom in Christ, they, are, they have equal value to, to God, and so now what do you think their, their natural response would be to their husbands? <laughs> Kill them, <laughs> right? Like, divorce? Uh, you're sleeping on the couch? I can think of a lot of things that a woman might begin to think once they, re- once they are taught the, the, the truths of Scripture about men and women. And so, we have this culture, and we have these women that are getting saved, and they're married to non-Christian men or men who at least are living as if they are not Christians, and that is the context in which this is written. 
Now let's go back to the first few verses of chapter 3 to get a running start at verse 7. Okay, so let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to read just these two verses, but we're going to then go back and look at what it's saying. In the same way, you wives, be, submiss- be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if the, any one of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Okay. So, back at the beginning there, it says, in the same way. Whenever you're reading your Bibles and you see that, or you see like the word therefore, you have to start to think, okay, what came before in the same way? Because whatever way it was before, now that's also being applied to this topic as well, in the same way. Well, 1 Peter chapter 2 is all about submission. 1 Peter chapter 2 is about Christians submitting to the government that a Christian should submit to the government, even if it's an oppressive government, even if the government doesn't deserve that a Christian should submit to the government. Why? Because you might win them for Christ. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. And it goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2 that that's the same way with employees and employers, that an employee should submit to their boss. Even if their boss is apathetic, even if their boss is lazy, even if they're a bad boss, even if they don't care about you, that you submit to them, not because they deserve it, but so that you might win them. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, right? And then people are thinking as they're reading those ideas, that's impossible. That's impossible to do that. And so then Peter gives an example in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The example is Jesus. Jesus did it. Jesus fit into the plans of God the Father, and he submitted to God the Father and came to earth, the second person of the Trinity coming to earth, being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, 100% man, 100% God, and dying on the cross for the sins of people, me and you, so that we would have the hope of heaven, and then rising from the grave. Jesus submitted to God in that. And so now we get in the same way you wives, just like a Christian submits to the government, just like an employee submits to their employee so that they would be one, just like Jesus Christ fit into the plans of God the Father in the same way, wives. Be submissive to your own husbands. Now, I get that that's a very controversial statement in today's culture, but, but the word submissive or submit is not a... <laughs> That's not creating a, a, a hierarchy of, of lesser and more. This isn't a value statement, that wives are less valuable than husbands. We've already talked about that in page one, the Bible already sets for us that there's equal value. Men and women are made in the image of God. Equal value, and yet now still they're submitting. For instance, you have the, the quarterback and you have the wide receiver. The wide receiver submits to the quarterback. The quarterback tells them what the play is, but they're both equal in value. The football team cannot score without the quarterback or without the wide receiver. Both of them are equal value when they run out on the field. Both are important to, to win the game, but one submits to the other so that the game can be played. Jesus, Jesus Christ submitted to God the Father. Did you know that? God sent Jesus Christ to planet Earth. Did you know that God the Holy Spirit submitted to Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, when he ascended back up into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of, the, inside of believers. Does that mean that Jesus is any less than God the Father? No. 
Does that mean that God the Holy Spirit is lesser or worse or of a lower quality or of a lower value than Jesus Christ? No, they are all equally God. They all have what God has. They are all God, three persons, and yet we have one God. They all have this. They all, they all own the, the quality of being God, not lesser, not a lesser value. One submits to the other. Submission is not a value statement at all. And also notice that this is only in the realm of marriage. It says, be submissive to your own husbands. This means that women, as they interact with their husbands, it's a different interaction than with all of the other men, that they don't need to be submissive to all the men in the culture, just their own husbands. It says, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, any of who, even if any of the husbands are disobedient to the word, they, they, they have an antagonistic attitude, the word, that's the gospel, that's the, the word of Christ. If they aren't interested in being persuaded by the gospel, that's who Jesus is talking to, wives who are married to men who are not saved. They had both gotten, they had both gotten married before they had heard the gospel. Maybe, maybe they had gotten married even before they would ever even heard of Jesus before. The wife hears the gospel, she gets saved, but she's married to a man who is not saved. And he's not really interested in being married to her. And so, and so she has a lot of ideas. She, she might want to divorce him. She might want to quit on him. She might want to kick him out. She might want to kick him to the, to the couch. But instead, Peter says, submit. Fit into his plans. If you want to win him, you're going to fit into his plans. Notice that's the whole point of this. We keep reading in verse 1. If any of them are disobedient to the word, that they, meaning the husbands, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they, the husbands, observe the wives' chaste, which is uh, moral, and respectful behavior. The goal in all of this is that you might win your husband, that you might win your husband for Christ. Now, Peter doesn't use himself or his wife as an example. He uses someone else as an example for this. Get down to verse 5. In verse 5 it says, For in this same way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just like Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So he uses this example of Sarah, and that made sense because most of the Jewish women knew exactly who Sarah was. She was one that they all looked up to. They knew all about Sarah. And so this wasn't uh, an, uh, a, a mention that needed any explanation at all. Now, you might need some explanation on why Sarah is mentioned here. Now, if you're coming on Wednesday nights, you need no exp- explanation either. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching through the book of Genesis And just this last week, on Wednesday, we got to Genesis chapter 12, and those of you who were there, you you know, we learned how Sarah was immensely submissive to her husband, Abraham. And so, for you, you don't even, you don't need that, but there are some people in here who weren't there on Wednesday night, no guilt, just, you know, let me help them know what we all got last Wednesday, okay? So, here's what happened last Wednesday. Sarah was born in a, in a, 
in a cultural city named Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur was, was a, 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 now that, that archaeologists have gone through and excavated it, they believe that it was a very advanced city. Uh, they believe that Abraham and Sarah in their city in Ur, in their house in Ur, they had a bathtub, that they had running water in their bathtub in Ur. It, we're talking old school, Old Testament. We're talking to Abraham and Sarah. And so it was an advanced city. But the problem is, is that when she married Abraham, uh, Abraham became a, <laughs> a Bedouin herdsman, meaning that he's going to travel around for the rest of his life in a stinking tent. And so guess what Sarah did? For the rest of her life, she followed her husband, she fit into his plans, and she was in a tent for the rest of her life. She didn't have a garden she didn't have a kitchen to remodel. She didn't have neighbors that she could talk to. She didn't have uh, a women's ministry and a wonderful women's breakfast, which I heard was really great yesterday. But I didn't even know we were going to get clapped for that. But she didn't have a women's breakfast. She, she didn't have any of the, the, the wonderful things that you're accustomed to. She had none of it. She just fit into her husband's plans. So get this. She's married to a goofball. Abraham ends up in Egypt because there's not enough water in Canaan. He ends up in Egypt. And there's this thing that goes on in, these, um, in, these, uh, in, in this part of the world where if the, if the sheik or the pharaoh or whoever is like the, the one who like dominates the land, if they see a woman that they like and she's married, they go kill the husband so that the sheik or the pharaoh could marry the, the, the woman. Now, I mean, that's kind of funny to me. You know, adultery, no. We can't do adultery at all, but murder's okay. We can go kill the husband, and then I can marry her. We're all good with that. Anyway, that's the way that it worked. And so Abraham told his wife, Sarah, okay, don't tell them you're my wife. Just tell them that you're my sister. I'll tell them that I'm your brother, and we'll be good. And you know what? She submitted. She fit into those plans. And the whole plan was, if the woman wasn't um, married, if the woman had brother, had a family with them, and the sheik or the pharaoh saw the woman and she was beautiful and wanted uh, her in his harem, then they would negotiate the deal. They would negotiate what, what was going to be traded for what so that they could have the, the woman. And so Abraham's math was, was, well, if we get into this situation and if they find you beautiful, well, then uh, this whole negotiation time for the dowry, I could figure out how to get us out of this situation I got us in. So sure enough, they end up in Egypt, and sure enough, the Pharaoh's people see her, and she is very beautiful, and the Pharaoh wants her. And so they start to negotiate. They actually do the deal where he gives, the, the Pharaoh gives Abraham the goods, and they couldn't get out of there, and Sarah becomes the Pharaoh's wife. I mean, she is a saint, you know? And so, of course, According to God, the Pharaoh wasn't married to Sarah. Abraham's married to Sarah. And God, in a miraculous way, brought a, a disease to fall upon uh, Pharaoh because he's now married Abraham's wife. He doesn't even know what's going on. He was lied to. And I think it was Sarah that went, ended up telling Pharaoh that, that I really am his wife. Finally, 
you know, because she, she didn't want anything worse to happen beyond that. This is the type of woman that Sarah was. And then they get kicked out of Egypt. And get this, 24 years later, when now she's 89 years old, I mean, she's way into Medicare by this point. <laughs> 89 years old, her, her goofball husband does it again. Hey, 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 tell him I'm your, I'm your brother. What kind of goofball? She's married to a goofball. And yet, Sarah fit into the plans of her husband. And the Bible tells us that they were married for 110 years. And, and, and as she died at 127 years old, the Bible gives this beautiful scene of, of Abraham just crying like a baby over the grave of his wife. And never once in her life was she wishing that, that she was not married to her husband. She was content. She was at peace with the family that she was in. And Sarah just knew that as Abraham's wife, that, that, there was, that God was going to do something bigger with the both of them than they could ever do separately. And so Sarah linked her goals to Abraham's goals, and that's the way that she lived her entire life. And so... Peter is using Sarah as an example to these wives in the first century. Hey, if you want to win your husband, be like a Sarah. If you want to win your husband, be like a Sarah. I know that's controversial today, but it hasn't been for the last 6,000 years. If you want to win your husband, be like a Sarah. So we get to the end of verse 26. Look at verse, sorry, verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 3. See how we're just kind of slowly going through the context of this, even before we get to our verse, notice at the end of verse 6. Verse 6 says, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay, note to self, make sure Tanya calls me Lord later today. Uh, if you've become, uh, and you've become her children, if you do what is right, meaning what's being taught here, without being frightened by any fear. Now, why would, why would there be fear here? I mean, Husbands, think about this. Why would our wives be afraid of any of this? Stare into her eyes and look in the, look in the fear in her eyes. Why would, why would our wives be afraid of this? Well, both first century women and 21st century wives are afraid of the same thing. They're afraid that they're married to a goofball. And they're afraid that their husband is going to make decisions and not even consider them. They're afraid that, that their husband is going to sit on the couch and watch NFL and play video games all day long and make his wife go out and bring home the bacon. That's what, that's what wives are worried about. Wives are worried that their husband is just going to turn into a dictator if they decide that they're going to do this Christian thing and they're going to fit in the plans of their husband, that their husband is just going to dictate to them what to do without including them at all. And the first century women had already experienced all of those things, maybe except for the NFL part. But the first century women had already lived that life and they were kind of freaked out about submitting even more. And so, guys, we kind of have to remember that our wives might be a little freaked out about all of this idea of fitting into the plans of 
my husband and submitting to them. But now, we have looked at the context now for 30 minutes. And finally, we get to the verse that we started with. And so now, maybe we could understand this verse with a little better clarity. Let's read the entire thing, and then we'll look at it part by part. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So notice back at the very beginning, it says, you husbands, in the same way. In what same way? Chapter 2, just like Christians are going to submit to the government because they want to win them for Christ, just like an employee is going to submit to their boss, just like Jesus Christ fit into the plans of God the Father, just like your wives are are submitting to you in the same way, you're going to submit to your wives too. Now, it's not going to be the same type of submission. It's a different type of submission in all of these. Uh, Women don't submit to their husbands the same way that they submit to the government. And so what way is it that a husband, in the same way, is going to submit to his wife? Well, it's just the next phrase. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This is how a husband is going to submit to his wife. He is going to understand her. And all the husbands in the room say, that's impossible. (laughs) There is no way that I can understand my wife. She's an impossibility to understand. As soon as I think I understand her, It changes. But this is how a husband is going to submit to his wife for the rest of his life. In the same way, a husband is going to begin to understand what his wife thinks, what her thoughts are, what her ideas are, what her dreams are, what her hopes would be. And that he would do that before he makes any decisions. He would do that before that he makes some dumb decision. He would do that before he makes her go out and bring home the bacon that they would talk about, and he would learn what she really wanted to do. Does she want to be a mom, or does she want to go out and earn an income? That'd be a good thing for a husband to know. That he would, instead of dictating before he listened to his wife, that he would listen to the things that his wife thought, the ideas that she had, and then they would come up with a decision together. And I don't think any of our wives would be afraid to submit to us (laughs) if they were confident that we were paying attention to, if we were trying to understand them better today than we did yesterday. And that's kind of the problem, though, you know, like, we have a sermon like this, and all the husbands go, okay, I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I'm going to do my best this week. I'm going to try to live with her in an understanding way. I'm going to try to learn her. And so we, get, we do a little better, and we do a little better, and we do a little better. And then, you know, two, two weeks in and three weeks in, and then, and then a month or two or three, and then we just kind of forget. We just forget. <laughs> we don't do it again. And that's what our, our wives are afraid of, that we're going to forget to include them in the leading of our home. And that's why they could be afraid. But why does it use this phrase, as with someone weaker? Your Bibles, depending on the translation, might use the phrase weaker vessel. Why does it say weaker since she's a woman? Why does it say that? Well, I don't think that, that we're talking about physical weakness here. 
There are some pastors, there are some commentaries, uh, maybe even the, in the bottom notes of your Bible, that say that this is physical weakness. Um, and I don't think that that's the case. I don't think this is physical weakness. There's some women that could beat me up, okay? So I don't think that that's what this is referring to. Now, a, a vast majority, though, of commentaries and, and pastors will say that this is referring to emotional weakness, that uh, women are weaker emotionally, that they cry over things that men don't cry over. And that's true. But when I started to play basketball in high school, I found out that guys cry over basketball. <laughs> and so it is true that women cry about things that men don't cry about, but men cry about things that women don't cry about. And so I don't think this is talking about emotional weakness either. What kind of weakness is this? I think the Bible can tell us. I think the Bible can interpret this for us. I don't think we have to wonder. I don't think we have to guess. I think the Bible answers it. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. I have it here on the screen. In Genesis, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created perfect, meaning their marriage was, it was, it was great. No ball and chain. Adam loved to be married to Eve. And Eve had no problems fitting into the plans of, of Adam. It was a wonderful marriage. Give and take, equally image in the eyes of God, completing each other in a wonderful marriage. That was until page three. And in page three, sin entered into the situation. They both sinned. And some, some things happened as a result of sin. They were cursed in many ways, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, is the, the, the results of Eve's sin. And here it is, to the woman, he, that's God, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain will bring forth children. So imagine that, that Eve, if she would have had any kids, which she didn't, but if she would have had any kids before she sinned, uh, it would have been like a tickle. Hey, give me another one. I'll do, I'll do another. Give me five more. That'd be great. That's what it was like before. But, he, but the point is, is this next section. Yet, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This is the, the conflict of the ages. This is God's blueprint for a family, but also the source of the battle of all marriages. The husband is going to be the one that's going to lead the home. And yet the wife is going to want to take that leadership away from him. And that's the way that it's been ever since. That she's going to want to rebel against that. A woman is going to want to rebel against that. And she's going to realize that she's married to a goofball. And she's going to want to take the reins in the home. And yet it's going to be the husband that is the one that's leading the home. Now, the natural propensity for a man is to rule, is to dictate. And so now you have these two issues. You have a, a fallen sinful man who wants to dictate, and you have a woman who wants to usurp the, the blueprint in the home by taking over his authority in the home, and now you've got the battle. And now instead of completion, you now have competition, the battle of the ages. And that's where it starts. That's how it's been throughout all of time. And so though a, a wife's natural 
response would be to rebel against this dictating, Peter says, you submit. You fit into his plans. And in this way, she is weaker. She is on purpose making herself vulnerable to potential abuses that could come. And in this way, she is weaker. She is making the decision to do that. She doesn't want to be vulnerable. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. But she is going to do it because she is now a called child of Christ. She's been changed by Christ. And so now, what do we do with this information? Like, what, what do guys do with information like this? In war, in in, in, in business, in football, when a guy finds out that there's a weakness, what do you do? You exploit it. That's what you do. Think about it on the football field. That's what happens every single Friday night uh, on all the football fields in Riverside. As those two teams play for the first half, all the coaches are, are looking at the other team's defense and they're looking for holes. They're looking for weaknesses to exploit. And as soon as they find that weak kid, as soon as they find that one that can't run fast, as soon as they find that one that can't defend, what are they going to do the entire second half? They're going to they're gonna run the ball at that kid until he just dies. Why? Because you exploit weaknesses. That's what you do in business. You find someone that can't negotiate very well, and you make sure you make the appointment with him because you exploit the weakness. What do you do in battle when you want to win the war? You find, you find where they don't have the, the right airplanes in the right place, and that's where you go first. You exploit the weakness. And so what's the natural propensity for a man to do in a marriage when now there's a weakness? Exploit it. And that's what we've seen for the last 6,000 years in all of these places all around the world where women are exploited, where they're subjugated, where they're put in places and in situations that they should never have been in, they're created equal in value, and yet the natural human sinful propensity is to exploit the weakness. But Peter says, husbands, you honor it. You don't exploit it, you honor it. Notice what that says. It says, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. The first thing that a husband does to submit to his wife is to honor her by understanding her. By understanding what she wants, what she likes, what she thinks, what her dreams are, what her hopes are. What, what pleases her, where she wants to go on vacation, what kind of car she wants to buy, what color you should paint the lip, all of it. Listen to her. Be interested in her differences. Because, yes, we are equal in value, but we are very, very different. And so when you have a husband that says, you have to submit to me, neener, 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 you have to, sit to submit to me. That's just the way that it is. Ha <laughs> ha, you have to submit to me. When a husband says that, a wife can say right back to him, yes, I am weaker, and you're to honor it. And so when Peter calls wives weaker, that's not a negative thing. That should not be uh, pitied. That should not be looked down upon that shouldn't be made fun of, 
It shouldn't be exploited, which that's what has happened throughout the ages. It's not like a wink and a nudge, like, yeah, yeah, she's just my wife, just a ball and chain, don't worry about her. But this type of weakness is to be honored. I mean, let's say you have a crystal vase. You have a crystal vase on the mantle. Okay, which has more value? The crystal vase on your mantle or the 50-pound of concrete, the bag of concrete from Home Depot in your garage? Which one's more valuable? Well, I, I, I get it, inflation. Yeah, I mean, it, it used to cost $15, now it's about, about $300 for that bag of concrete. I get it. Same inflation for the, for the vase, though. It used to be a couple thousand, and now it's many more thousands. Which one is weaker, the the 50-pound bag of concrete or the crystal vase on the mantle? Which one's weaker? Well, the vase is much weaker, but it's much more valuable. And that's why one is on your mantle and one's out in the garage because of the value of the weakness. That's the word honor. And so when a man marries a woman, he marries someone that is like him. They're created in the image of God, but they are not the same. If we go down there the same route, we end up in terrible places. The Bible does not teach that. They're very different. Genesis says that the woman is a helper suitable for her husband. Starting all the way back at the beginning, this has been the blueprint for the family, that the husband is the the head of the home. And when a woman decides to marry her husband, she's deciding to fit into his plans, as big of a goofball as he might be. And the biblical plan would be that the husband loves his wife so much, honors her so much for her willingness to do that, that he pays attention to everything that she's interested in. He pays attention to her dreams and her hopes and her wants and where she wants to live and why she wants to live there and why her family is so important to her. The husband begins to learn his wife. You know, the, the jewels in the castle are why the castle is there, you know. The jewels are in the middle. You have all the concrete walls built all around the jewels. And the purpose of those walls is to protect the jewels. Well, which one's bigger and stronger? Well, of course, the walls are bigger and stronger. But the jewels, they're the ones that are honored. The wife, the wife is the jewels. The husband, the husband's in the castle. And so the question is, are women weaker than men. Yeah, they are, but not in the way that you think. When a wife submits to her husband, that is a wonderful weakness that is to be honored and is to be lifted up. And if you're thinking all of this is impossible, it is. 
I mean, it's easy to talk about here, right? I mean, there's no problems happening here. We've got AC. It's nice. There, there's no other distraction, no problems, no family drama, no, no kids in here, no, no work issues, no, no arguing, no differences right here as we sit in this for this hour. And it seems like utopia to talk about marriage like this. But remember, just like a, a citizen is to submit to the government even when they don't deserve it, and just like an employee is to submit to their boss, even if that boss doesn't deserve it, you're going to f- say in your mind, well, but I will begin to submit to my husband when he begins to do that for me, when he deserves it. But that's not the, that's not the message. Just as Christ did to God the Father, fitting into God the Father's plans, so this Both husbands and wives are to operate like this. How could you do this? The only way that this is possible is by Jesus Christ in your life, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I've given you the short short version of the gospel. Jesus is God. He died on the cross for your sins. He came to earth and he died on the cross for your sins. And when, when a person puts their faith in Jesus, something happens. The third person of the Trinity submits to Jesus Christ, by the way, and comes and lives inside of the heart of a person. And that that power of that Holy Spirit, the, the, the abilities that come from that Holy Spirit are what allow husbands and wives to do the things that we've talked about here. But there's even a greater thing, that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your sins are removed. I mean, your marriage problems are probably something big that's in your mind, but your sin problem before God is even a greater thing. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God for eternity in a place called hell. I mean, you might think your marriage is hell, but the Bible tells us that, that marriage ends in death. And so then, then it's over. But the Bible tells us that when you die as a sinner, you spend eternity in death. And so your sin concern before God is even a bigger concern than your marriage. So I'd like you to consider putting your faith and trust in Jesus not to save your marriage, although it will, <laughs> will help, but for your sin problem. If you have realized that you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you've never allowed Jesus Christ to rescue you from your sins, today's a day where you can put your faith and trust in Jesus, the Savior, the one that we've sung to this morning. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? This creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just a minute. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, today's the day where you can do that. I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk to him. It's just called prayer. Maybe you're not sure what to say. I can help you. You can just repeat these words in your own heart. Repeat these words to, um, to, to God in your mind. He can read your mind. He can read your heart. And this is what you could say to him. You say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I've done things that I shouldn't have done, including in my marriage. And I realize that that separates me from you for eternity in a place called hell. And... I need a savior, I need a rescuer, and I believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. I believe that he is God. I believe that he came to earth on Christmas Day. He was born of a virgin. I believe that he lived a perfect life because he was God and man. And I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for my sins. And I put my faith and my trust in this Jesus. I believe that he rose from the grave and that he can remove my sin. I put my trust in him that he will take my sin away and he will take my soul to heaven when I die. Well, God, we as a church family, we thank you for a morning like this. We thank you for the reminders that it has brought and we thank you for the hope that it has brought to millions of marriages around the world ever since it was written. We praise you for it. 
God, I pray that you, through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit, would be building up marriages at Grace Community Church. That marriages here at Grace would be an example to their own children, an example to our culture of you and, and, and your love for us. And God, now as we turn our attention to another way of worship, which is giving our first and, back, first, uh, our first and best back to you financially, just another aspect of worship, God. We know we can't pay you back for our sins. We know we can't, can't pay you for our salvation. We simply give to you as an act of worship, thankful for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.